1: Welcome to the podcast. This week's number is one, or more specifically, the ordinal, first, as in the states that go first in the 2020 race. We're talking Iowa and New Hampshire, the first caucus, the first primary, and we know that the campaigns are intensifying their efforts to go up there and meet the voters. There were just a number of them there over this Labor Day weekend.
0: You're going to spend a lot of time in New Hampshire. We did well in New Hampshire last year, last time, but uh, we're not taking anything for granted. This is obviously a very important state, as is Iowa and South Carolina.
2: trying to meet as many voters as I can, and talk about why I'm in this race, to talk about my vision, to talk about what's broken.
1: Now, the about- argument for having these states go first has always been, in part, that this is a place where the candidates can meet the voters face to face. And then the rest of the nation watches what they've decided with ostensibly all this information about the candidates. But what is different about this in an age of social media, of viral videos, of a race to qualify for national debates among all these candidates? And of course, this year, a really front loaded schedule that has a lot of big other states, California, Texas, you name it, on the calendar coming right on the heels Of places like Iowa and New Hampshire. So we'll ask in this episode how do we watch the ground game taking place up there? How do we watch the candidates making efforts to meet voters and whether it works the way it used to and whether you need to already be a national figure, maybe even a celebrity, to run for president? I am Anthony Salvanto. Welcome to this episode of Where Did You Get This Number? If you are a political junkie, you love the idea of the New Hampshire primary. It goes first right after the Iowa caucuses. You love the idea that campaigns go up there and practice one-on-one politicking with voters. But is it changed? I am joined by Nicole Skanga, CBS News campaign reporter up there on the ground in New Hampshire. Nicole, I am totally jealous that you you were there watching this all unfold. How are you?
2: I'm great. It's exciting to be here with you and sharing my experiences with you. And you're right. New Hampshire is a place that's filled with political junkies. So trying to keep up with them and fill you in on what's happening on the ground.
1: You know, it strikes me that the the one on one politicking that New Hampshire is kind of famous for what you're seeing on the ground there. Are the campaigns really actively trying to do that or are they all sort of making plays to try and get broader attention, to try and get on the national media because the way that they have to qualify for debates and they have to get bigger leads in national polls, et cetera.
2: Well, Anthony, we should note there's a way to lift your national profile and also continue that voter contact that we know is so essential to winning the New Hampshire primary. So, for example, we've seen a lot of large New Hampshire rallies. So, Senator Kamala Harris from California, Senator Elizabeth Warren from Massachusetts, and Mayor Pete Buttigieg from South Bend, Indiana have actually hosted big rallies in the Granite State that have drawn over 800 people to watch them. And what's interesting about these big rallies, they actually do require a great deal of ground game. So, for instance, we've seen Senator Elizabeth Warren from Massachusetts, her team is styled off of an old organizing model. They have been knocking on doors in smaller rural communities around New Hampshire, getting folks excited about coming out to see their candidate. So a few weeks ago, Senator Elizabeth Warren held a big rally in a little place called Franconia, New Hampshire. It's a town of about 1,100 people, and 700 people showed up to this rally. That's interesting. And while we're seeing more of these big rallies... We haven't totally abandoned the idea of voter-to-voter contact or retail-style politics either. After that giant rally in Franconia, Warren stuck around for a couple of hours to take selfies with each person that wanted one.
1: Is her, when you say ground game, unpack that for people, has she got paid staffers? Has she got college kids who's doing the door knocking up there
2: so while her new hampshire campaign team will not tell us exactly how many people she has on the ground here we actually did our own independent probe and found out that senator elizabeth warren has over 60 people here in new hampshire that's the biggest staff on the ground that we've seen so far and we also know that she's bringing in volunteers not only from new hampshire but from nearby Massachusetts, folks that are knocking on doors on her behalf. And New Hampshire, we should note, does have a history of this Bay State advantage. So this advantage of Massachusetts candidates, senators, governors who are able to bring over help and improve their ground game, improve their canvassing efforts, their phone banking efforts with help from volunteers in nearby Massachusetts. So when we talk about the Massachusetts advantage, we're talking about candidate Michael Dukakis in 1988, uh, then Paul Songus in 1992, John Kerry in 2004, and Mitt Romney in 2012. All Massachusetts lawmakers all won the New Hampshire primary.
1: So the idea is if they say they've got a massive staff and then she wins, they think that people will discount that and say, oh, well, it was just because you had people come in from Massachusetts. And so what?
2: I think that's definitely part of it. The other part is just not wanting to show too many of your cards this early on. But everyone I speak to on the ground here, local kingmakers, party officials, even just regular plain old voters tell me that they've seen her canvassers, her volunteers and her paid staff walking around the state, especially in places that we don't typically see early organizing, like up in Carroll and Coas County, where less voters live.
1: Tell me about a local kingmaker. I love that expression and that <laughs> idea, but but who is that? Have you met one? What do they look what do they look like? What do they do?
2: One who is perhaps the most storied Kingmaker in New Hampshire modern history is Senator Lou DeLisandro, and he represents the Manchester area. Just a couple weeks back, he endorsed Vice President, former Vice President Joe Biden.
1: He's a state senator. He's a state senator. He's a state
2: senator, senator, and he will tell you stories of being courted from everyone, from John Kerry to John Edwards. Uh, He can, you know, recite for you. Christmas cards that he's received from Secretary Hillary Clinton and phone calls he's taken from Howard Dean. And so certainly uh, someone like Senator Lou Delisandro is valued because folks know him.
1: Have you noticed when you talk to voters that Okay, they may see this campaign TV ad, et cetera, et cetera, but it's not as effective because going back to this idea of one on one politicking, they say, well, I've got to meet this candidate in person and maybe the campaign ad doesn't matter as much anymore.
2: Absolutely. And there is an old adage here in New Hampshire that I still think rings true. Every voter wants to shake hands with every candidate three times before making up their (laughs) mind. And so something we heard a lot after the first and second democratic debates was, oh, Secretary Julian Castro did a great job in that debate, or, oh, I really liked what I heard from Senator Cory Booker. Next time they're in town, I'll make sure that I'm at an event that they Mm. appear in in Manchester, in Nashua or in Berlin, right? And so voters are enthused by what they see on national television. They're excited by seeing candidates appear on the front cover of The New York Times. But that's not going to do it for them. They're going to wait to then shake that candidate's hand next time they're in New Hampshire to make up their mind.
1: Now, on that point, Nicole, as important as all that is, one of the things you've reported is that fewer candidates are coming or the candidates are actually coming less than maybe they have in the past and they're spending other time in places like Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, other places that will hold primaries that they consider valuable as well. Do you think or have have the campaigns told you that because there is a front-loaded calendar this year, which means because there's a lot of big states, California, Texas, others who are holding their primaries closer up in the winter on the calendar, has that dampened or diminished the amount of time that – candidates are spending in New Hampshire?
2: Well, I think if you asked the average voter here in New Hampshire, would you like to see the candidates more, they would probably laugh because we still do get (laughs) quite a slew of candidate visits in New Hampshire, especially with 20 people in this race. That being said, we are seeing certain campaigns put more of an emphasis on some of the other Super Tuesday states, some of the general election swing states. So I spoke with Faz Shakir, who is Senator Bernie Sanders' campaign manager, and he told me that while it's absolutely critical their campaign and Senator Bernie Sanders wins New Hampshire, if you look at some of their early visits in March and in April, they were in places like Michigan, like Wisconsin, like Pennsylvania, And that was strategic because they felt they needed to create an electability pitch to voters that in order to defeat Donald Trump, you have to carry those states and you have to bring your message right there to the voters in some of those general election swing states. And so certainly that's been part of what we're seeing on the ground.
1: Indeed. Nicole Skanga up there in New Hampshire. Nicole, I have a feeling we will be talking a great deal in the coming months. Again, uh, have a great time. You are right there at the center of it all. That is fun. Thank you, Nicole.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Coming up in a moment, we'll be joined by historian and CBS News radio analyst Lenny Steinhorn about the history of these primaries and whether they still work the way they used to. It is post-Labor Day. The campaigns are heating up. I know it feels like I've said that many times because it has been heated. This is Anthony Salvanto. Uh, where did you get this number? Joined again by Lenny Steinhorn, CBS News radio analyst and historian. Lenny, how are you?
0: Hey, everything's good. You know, as these uh, temperatures go down in the fall, the political intensity rises. There's almost an inverse relationship with it. And in the middle of the cold weather, we will be seeing the hottest political campaign in a long time.
1: So, look, we're talking Iowa and New Hampshire, the candidates obviously spending a lot of time in those two states. So the model of this, and there are a few models for how the primaries work, is that the nation and the media will pay attention to the first set of contests because it's the first time they have a chance to see A winner, even if it's in a state that isn't necessarily representative of the country, it's the place where these campaigns have gone to test themselves. And sometimes they go specifically to a place that's full of voters they might not otherwise have been expected to win. The most recent example, perhaps, uh, besides the ones you mentioned, Lenny, is Obama in 2008, where he goes and, you know, he's trailing in the polls in other states, and he goes and maybe it's a surprise that he wins the Iowa caucuses. And then voters in the other states, particularly in South Carolina for African-American voters, suddenly see somebody and say, wait a second, we think that candidate can win over, in this case in Iowa, White voters. And so they start to think maybe, maybe he's more electable than they previously thought. And that's kind of a classic example of the primary state or the caucus state as a testing ground. And that's there's a lot of examples
0: in history of that, right? Well, yeah, a lot of examples, and especially when you can win in Iowa or New Hampshire, the national media focuses on you as well. And all of a sudden, the narrative of your candidacy takes hold. You're seen as a winner, you're seen as a possible president, you have the momentum. Other people start to lose that. And then all of a sudden, when they start to lose that, their supporters start to doubt them, their funders start to doubt them. And it becomes this intense sort of rolling dynamic that boosts the person who does well early on. The funny thing about Obama is that even though his was sort of a legendary campaign in terms of how he went into Iowa and won it, even though his numbers were way down just a couple months before uh, the Iowa caucuses, he really adapted a model put together by a predecessor, President Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter was given no chance in 1975. In December of 1974, when he announced his candidacy, his hometown newspaper, the Atlanta Journal Constitution, the headline was Jimmy Who? Nobody thought that he would have a chance, but he campaigned nonstop in Iowa. He believed that if he could win Iowa, He would dominate the national narrative. He would get the attention, and that would give him momentum in the campaign. And sure enough, he went door to door. He left notes with people when nobody was home. He met with the local press. He knew a lot about farming because he was a peanut farmer. He wins Iowa. He becomes president of the United States.
1: Now, overall, you, you look at the primary process such as it is. And if you go back and read the Constitution, you'll notice there's nothing about primaries in there and there's nothing about Iowa and New Hampshire in particular. Uh, You know, talk about the way this has come up in American politics. It's somewhat organic. It's a process that's almost reflective of the sort of entrepreneurial nature of our campaigns and also the fact that the parties over time have tried to give the power to pick nominees – Back to voters. It used to be, you know, the famous smoke-filled rooms. A handful of smoke, you know, a few party bosses would pick a nominee and say, "Here you go, everybody." But that's changed over time, and the primaries and caucuses have sort of played a critical role in this, right?
0: Yeah, I think it's part of the long democratization of American politics. Remember, the uh, Constitution originally didn't give the right to elect senators to the people of each state. It was the state legislators. um, And that changed with the 17th Amendment. So over time, it began to say – we began to say, look – We have to let the voters have a say if we are a true democracy. There was a notion that uh, Hubert Humphrey didn't really enter a single primary in the year 1968 and got the nomination because he had the Lyndon Johnson organization behind him. And after Humphrey loses, Nixon becomes president, they put together a commission in the Democratic Party saying – the voters have to have a say in all of this. And those reforms, what ultimately would launch the Iowa caucuses and give much more say and much more power, not only to the Nehantra primary, but all the other primaries that would succeed it. The reforms being
1: specifically that some of the delegates that were going to the national convention would be chosen by votes, by primary votes or by caucuses, right?
0: Correct. And you see, even this year, um, there was concern in 2016 that Hillary Clinton was able to sort of do so well in her nominating contest against Bernie Sanders because she had the support of what are called the superdelegates. These are party officials, elected officials, big people in the Democratic Party who weren't elected as delegates, but they were sort of chosen by the Democratic National Committee, and she was able to get the support of a large chunk of them. This year, they don't have a say in the first round of voting. So basically, whoever gets in there and has the most delegates, it's because you've won the most delegates in these primaries and caucuses.
1: So let's bring this forward to today. We've got what's clearly a top tier of candidates, right? You got your Biden, your Sanders, your Warren, Kamala Harris. But most of them have already been national figures going into this. Does the nature of things now, in your view, sort of tilt the scale towards somebody who was already, dare we say, a celebrity? Going into these to
0: these primaries, well, I think there's always been that element of celebrity. If you go back to the 19th century, think of William Henry Harrison. I, of, I
1: had not before this thought of you, William Henry Harrison, go. but you but see? that's what that's why I talk to you, sir.
0: <laughs> With William Henry Harrison, you've got the log cabin and hard cider, and it's a fascinating story about how that came about because he was criticized as this guy who really didn't have much to say who really hadn't worked much. He was the son of, you know, plantation owners, all the rest of that stuff. And he was criticized by his opponents for liking to sit on the banks of the Ohio River and drink hard cider and hang around in a log cabin. All of a sudden, the Harrison people twisted that in their to their advantage by making it seem like he was one of the people. And that Log cabin and hard cider campaign took over and he ultimately wins the president even though he's this sort of scion of a rich person he becomes the average man the spokesperson for the common person and he becomes the president of the United States based on that branding so Move ahead maybe 100 years and you look at John Kennedy. John Kennedy became a celebrity. He understood the power of celebrity, the power of television in the 1950s. In 1959, I think it was, he wrote an article for TV Guide talking about how TV will transform the presidency. He understood the power of image. In the 50s, he would appear with Edward R. Murrow on Murrow's Person-to-Person show. Life magazine featured his marriage to Jackie Bouvier, Jackie Kennedy, on the cover and inside uh, the the magazine. Uh, He turned himself into a celebrity, and in fact, he was friends with celebrity. And one of the major songs of the 1960 campaign was a Frank Sinatra tune called High Hopes in which everyone started singing it. Why did everyone sing it? Because Kennedy had money. He paid off tavern owners. He paid off bar owners. He paid off uh, diner owners to have them put the song in their jukebox and play it nonstop so the voters, when they would greet Kennedy at the grassroots, when he'd give speeches, would be singing High Hopes celebrity has always been important. It's just magnified now because we have more ways to get somebody out there and turn them into a celebrity. The views
1: of not only a stor- an historian, but a, a former speechwriter as well, the way the rhetoric has to shape things. Lenny, I suspect we will be talking more and more about just this sort of thing uh, as we go along. Lenny Steinhorn, as always, this has been fun, man.
0: Absolutely. Thanks.
1: That's going to wrap this episode of Where Did You Get This Number. Let me thank guests Nicole Skanga and Lenny Steinhorn for the great conversations. Let me thank my producer, Alan Pang, as always, for pulling this all together so deftly. And everyone here at CBS News Radio who makes this possible. Most of all, thank you for listening. At me with questions on Twitter for anything you've got
2: on polls, politics. And we'll be back here next week.